prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for allowing us to be here and allowing us to, to see one another, to open your word as we learn more about you and uh, what is about to happen. And, and uh, righteousness by faith in thy name, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So we've come a long way since this morning. We whipped through the sanctuary. We showed how it was very important, not only with Psalms 23 and a number of things. We, we talked about how Ellen White talks about the sanctuary as the key that unlocked the disappointment of 1844. That's the first thing it did. The second thing it did was it opened to view a complete system of truth. And we saw that as well. The third thing that we saw was that in, in the beginning of chapter 24, Great Controversy, was that it allowed us to see present truth, present truth. And that's what we wanted to, to look at today. We went through a number of examples. We showed how, how, the, um, thank you, how the, uh, the sanctuary is scalable. So Christ goes through his sanctuary, and it started in 457 BC, and it ends at the second coming very long, and, the, and that the, the first curtain is defined by the 70-week prophecy, and the second curtain is defined by the 2300 days. Very large, thousands of years has he gone through this sanctuary. But each one of us also has a small sanctuary that we go through. We accept Christ, we are baptized, we go through the holy place, and then finally onto the, uh, the most holy place. But we said that there was something in between those, and that was the church. And we thought that, the, that because of fractals and things that God uses in nature, maybe he used it in the same way. And we came up with a hypothesis. We said maybe that the, church, the church's sanctuary that it must go through, justification, sanctification, glorification, happens after 1844. So we set this up, we put it there, and we also uh, decided to say, or I have found, that, uh, that the Passover also predicts it. And then we started to plug in a bunch of stories from the Bible. We've plugged in the story of the Exodus, and we found that the story of the Exodus follows perfectly on those three days, Nisan 13, 14, and 15, exactly the story that we anticipate will happen. So we saw that circumcision needed to happen before the 14th, on the 13th, and we found that circumcision is a sign or a seal of righteousness by faith. And that is exactly what we, as Seventh-day Adventists, have been trying to convince the world of, which is righteousness by faith. In fact, uh, its cousin, justification by faith, Ellen White said, people have asked me, people have asked me, is justification by faith the 30 angels' message, the three angels' message? And she says, indeed, justification by faith is, in fact, the three angels' message. And so that whole idea of justification, sanctification by faith in that first period of time since 1844 till the, till the Sunday law, the 13th as we called it this morning, the whole idea is righteousness by faith. We're going to talk more about that this morning. But on the 14th of every Passover, they always celebrate it the same way. Leaven has to be out of the house. It has to be out. Anything that's left is burned by noon that day. Um, not only that, but in the first Exodus, we see Egyptians that were that were fearful of God came into the homes of, of the Israelites. And we will see, we know that, that on the 14th day, prophetically, that people out of Babylon are going to be coming into God's church. Well, then we know that at the end of that 14th, in every Passover story, whether it was Jericho, whether it was, um, uh, whether it was in Egypt, there was a door that closed. In every, in every single one of those stories, 
there's always a door that closes. Whether it is Lot being pulled in and the angels closing the door, or whether it is Moses telling the people to go into their homes and close the door, whether it is any of, whether it's Jericho, okay, where it, where it says very clearly there in Joshua that Jericho was straightly shut up. None went in, none came out. It's always the same type of situation in every story. It's at the end of the 14th. And what do we see at the end of our 14th that we're looking at? We see the general close of probation in every single one of those stories. So the more stories we put in there, the more that we see. We didn't get to really talk too much about it, but let's talk about the story of Abraham and Lot briefly before we get into the last week of Christ's life. So if we look at the story there of Abraham, remember Abraham had, had how many visitors that came to speak with him? Three. And it was right after, if you notice in Genesis, that he was circumcised, right? So what's the first thing that we see? Abraham is circumcised. And what is circumcision a sign of? In parallel, Romans 4.11. It is a sign of righteousness by the seal of righteousness by faith. That is what it is. Paul makes the point, he, he takes great pains to make the point that it was counted unto Abraham as righteousness before he was circumcised. What does that mean? That righteousness by faith can happen to the Jew or the Gentile. And that circumcision is a sign, it is a seal of righteousness. So Abraham becomes circumcised. The next thing that happens and this is the early portion of the story, so we're in the 13th. So prophetically, parallel, we are between 1844 and the Sunday Law. Ah, that's right now. Okay? And what is happening to Abraham? He, get, he gets three visitors, three angels. Think about that for a little bit. Three angels. What are the three angels' messages? The first angel's message, fear God for the hour of his judgment has come. Right? Jesus comes to Abraham. He's the first angel. And what does he tell Abraham? Abraham, for Sodom and Gomorrah, the hour of my judgment has come. It's exactly the same message. The other two angels, they go off and they meet Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what what is the second angel's message that we know from Revelation? Babylon has fallen. It's going down. And And the third angel is basically, get out before you get the mark of the beast, right? So it's falling and get out. And what does the second and third angel tell Lot in, Babel, in, uh, in Sodom and Gomorrah? This place is going down. It's time to get out. So here we have three angels that are coming, and they're saying exactly the same as the three angels' message that we're preaching, and it's happening in the very same time slot that we've allotted for it. Now, how do I know this is a Passover story? You're saying, at first, Roger, how do you know this is a Passover story? How could this possibly be a Passover story when this is Abraham and Lot? This is hundreds of years before the Israelites left Egypt. How could this possibly be a Passover story? Well, the Jews will tell you that Isaac was born on Nisan 15. They know that. That's in their tradition. They've kept track of that for years and years. Nisan 15 is at the Passover. And what did the three angels tell Abraham when they came and visited him? They said, by this time next year, you'll have a baby. And that was Isaac. So this is exactly at the time of the Passover, even even though it was hundreds of years before the first Passover. But time, is God limited by time? 
He created time. He lives outside of time. He is timeless. So here we see exactly the same pattern of the Passover hundreds of years before the Passover. Amazing stuff. So check it out. The two angels go to visit Lot and his wife and their two kids, their two daughters that are not yet married. He has other daughters that are married, but these two daughters are not. And Lot says on the same night that Moses tells the Israelites, do not tarry in the streets, but go into your home and close the door, Lot tells the two visitors, you need to come into my house and not be out in the streets. I find that very interesting. Isn't it interesting? And on the very same night that Moses tells the children of Israel, Nisan 14, to make unleavened bread, bread without leaven in it, because we got to get up and tomorrow we are free. We don't have time for the bread to rise, right? The two angels sit down with Lot, and Lot, before he even knows what the message is from the angels, before he even knows that that night he's going to be leaving Sodom and Gomorrah, before he knows the urgency of the message, what does Lot make for the angels? You can see it. Look in Genesis 19, verse 3, if you don't believe me. Genesis 19, verse 3. Guess what kind of meal he makes for the angels hundreds of years before the Passover? A meal of unleavened bread. Okay? So if that doesn't give you pause, that this is a pattern, then I don't know what will. Because there's no reason for Lot to be making unleavened bread. But it's there. And it's recorded. Do you remember what we saw in Education 123? Every fact has its bearing. Every word in the word of God has a reason for being there. And it's for you to figure it out. Here a little, there a little. Digging. You've got to dig to find the truth. This, this sanctuary message reveals a complete system of truth. And so once again, on the very day, now we're on the 14th, because they're making unleavened bread. What does the 14th symbolize? The period of time between the Sunday law and the close of probation. What will the church need to be making in its house? Unleavened bread. Why? Because we're getting rid of sin at that point. Why? Because the, because the latter rain is falling. And when the latter rain, this is something we don't understand as a church. When the latter rain falls, it's falling to seal. My wife and I like to go to Leone Meadows. And the kids always drag us up. No, it's my wife that does it. She drags me up there to the ceramics so we can paint the ceramics. She always wants me to make a Christmas ornament every year. I know it's gonna, we didn't get to make it this year because of COVID. The point is, is that when, it's when you're done painting the ceramic is when you put it into the oven. What happens if you put it into the oven before you're done painting? It's done. It's done. The oven is like the latter rain. The latter, when the latter rain falls, those who are in the church, it seals. The latter rain convinces people outside the church to understand the issues of the Sunday law and the law of God versus the law of man, and that causes them to come in like you've never seen before. Those that are not sealed in the church leave the church. There is a sanctification of the church. That happens on the 14th. Notice what happens on the 14th. The two angels come, and they have the same two messages that the two messages in Revelation are. Babylon has fallen. Sodom and Gomorrah has fallen. Get out. And then right in the story when you're expecting the door to close, because you know the close of probation is coming at the end of that, and it's in every single Passover story, and this one's no different. Sure enough, 
Lot goes to the door. The angels pull him in, and they close the door. And after that, Lot can't convince his married daughters that it's going to fall. Why? Because you can't convince people after the close of probation. It's done. Ministry is over. There's no more evangelism after the close of probation. It's done. And so what happens is they leave. And you notice that fire and brimstone falls on Sodom and Gomorrah. And and nowhere else in the Bible are those words used except in relation to Revelation and what is about to happen on this planet. So what what we're seeing here is we've we've made this, this dichotomy. We've made this provision. We've shown that if we look at at a eschatology that we have finely tuned over the last hundred years, if we look at that, if we look at the writings of the spirit of prophecy and we look at the Bible and we interpret it with these genius minds that have gone before us in the Seventh-day Adventist church and we come up with this chart of exactly what is about to happen, we find that it perfectly mirrors the narratives that are already in the Bible and that we could have derived this from those stories if we knew how to study the Bible. Isn't that what Ellen White says? That if you knew how to study the word, you wouldn't need the testimonies. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that you should be able to derive everything that we know in eschatology directly, purely from the Bible. That should not, that should not come as a surprise to you. So with this in mind, I decided to look at this and say, let's go to the last week of Christ's life. And I said, you know, do, am I just going off the deep end here, or do I have a basis for this? And when I found this quote, I almost fell out of my chair, because it's obvious. If you look at, at Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 415, this is what Ellen White says, and we said it this morning. She says, the scenes, I'm looking at the last week of Christ's life. By the way, the entire second half of the book of John is dedicated to the last week of Christ's life. That one week period of time, the entire second half of John, does that tell you something? That John thinks that that's really important. He spent a lot of time on that. So, here's the theory. The theory is is that if we study that last week of Christ's life, we will get in that same Passover period, the highest Passover that was ever on this earth, the Passover that stopped all further Passovers, What fulfilled the Passover that they've been looking forward to was finally fulfilled so that the day of rest, the Sabbath of the Passover, lined up with the Sabbath of the week. It was a high Sabbath, it said. And here we have the fulfillment of every prophecy leading to the death of Jesus Christ. And this is what we we believe that this may also give us another snapshot about what is about to happen on planet Earth. And this is what Ellen White says. Three selected messages, page 415. She says, the scenes of the betrayal, rejection, and crucifixion of Christ have been reenacted and will again be reenacted on an immense scale. So I knew at that point that I was not crazy because this is exactly what is about to happen. So then the next thing that I decided to say was, well, it'd be really, really interesting to see where we are right now in the story. Because maybe the story is going to give us some information about what is going to happen next. Isn't that a logical explanation that you could do, right? Doesn't it say at the end that God's people will know what is about to happen? They will have insight? Tell me, do you know how we got to where we are right now at this point? What did we start off with at the very beginning this morning? It was the 
sanctuary. Tell me, what other world religion believes in the sanctuary message? There are other religions that believe in keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. That is not what is unique to us as Seventh-day Adventists. Let me tell you what is unique to us as Seventh-day Adventists. It's the sanctuary message. That is it. Every other belief that we have is derived from the sanctuary, whether it's the state of the dead, whether it is the Sabbath, whether it is righteousness by faith, baptism, the, the word of God, the Holy Spirit, praying to God, all of those are derived from the sanctuary. So where are we? Well, if you look at it, do we have a national Sunday law? No. So we've got to beware on the 13th. So how does this happen? What, what I decided to do, and what we're going to do now for the, next, for the remaining time, is we're going to analyze that transition point between the 13th and the 14th. That happened that last week of Christ's life on Thursday evening as they gathered to sit around the table and have the Last Supper. Now, I want you to be very clear in your mind. What separates the 13th from the 14th is when the sun, as it's doing right now, goes down over the horizon. So that happened at around 6 p.m. So when it's daylight, it's the 13th. When it goes down and the sun has set, we're now immediately into the 14th. That's Thursday evening, Garden of Gethsemane. Does that make sense? So before that, before that, we're on the 13th. That is when, that is now, that is when the investigative judgment of the dead are taking place. But after the, on the 14th, that is when the investigative judgment of the living take place. Why do we believe that? Some people believe that it happens at that time, although we don't know exactly when that is. Ellen White says it's like a thief in the night. Nobody knows when it's going to happen. But it makes sense to a lot of people that when you actually have a law that you can see how people are acting, they can sort themselves as to how they're going to behave. So before sunset, we have the foot washing. After sunset, we have the taking of the Lord's Supper. Before sunset, we have the judgment of the dead. After sunset, we have the judgment of the living, the beginning of the judgment of the living. Before sunset, we have the former rain. After sunset, we have the latter rain. Before sunset, probation is open. After sunset, probation starts to close on those who are in the house of the Lord first. Right? Where does judgment begin for the living? In the house of the Lord. Is this making sense to you? So let, now, if we go to the Bible and study the events that occurred in that upper room, we might get an understanding about what might be happening now. But what's even more telling is when you look in Desire of Ages and start to read what Ellen White wrote about what was going on in that upper room. And she pulls out things that maybe she didn't even know what she was writing, but the Holy Spirit knew that later on people would understand this relationship and it might be telling us something today that we might not have gathered before. Does that make sense? Do you understand where we are right now? So now we're starting to read about the, uh, the, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, but we're reading it in a different sense. We're going to read it now and we're going to understand it in parallel for what it means for us today in the understanding of righteousness by faith. So Christ is still Christ, but now the leaders of the church are the leaders of the church. And the upper room is where they all are. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is a parallelism. There is a parallelism. So let's, let's start with that. Now, listen to what Ellen White says about the thief in the night. 
And I want to talk about this beginning of the investigative judgment for the living. This is what she says. She says, solemn are the scenes. This is a great controversy, 490. Solemn are the scenes connected with the closing work of the, of the atonement. Momentous are the interests involved therein. The judgment is now passing in the sanctuary above. For many years, this work has been in progress. Soon, none know how soon it will pass to the cases of the living. In the awful presence of God, our lives are to come up in review. At this time, above all others, it behooves every soul to heed the Savior's admonition. Watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. That's Mark 13, 33. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. So you will see that sometimes a thief in the night is used to describe the second coming of Jesus Christ, but it's also used to describe the beginning of the investigative judgment of the living. So a lot of these quotes that I'm going to talk about today are found in Desire of Ages, chapter 71, 72, and 76. All right, the first quote of Ellen White from chapter 71. We have to establish that this last supper occurred on Thursday night. This is what she says in Desire of Ages 642. In the upper chamber of the dwelling at Jerusalem, Christ was sitting at the table with his disciples. They had gathered to celebrate the Passover. The Savior desired to keep the feast alone with the twelve. He knew that his hour was come. He himself was the true Paschal Lamb, and on the day the Passover was eaten, he was to be sacrificed. He was about to drink of the cup of wrath. He must soon receive the final baptism of suffering, but a few quiet hours yet remained to him, and these were to be spent for the benefit of his beloved disciples. Think about this in parallel to us today. Now, what was the, what was the situation that was going on in that upper room? And see if there's a parallel there. Listen to it. Chapter 71, there was strife among them. Which of them should be accounted the greatest? This contention carried on in the presence of Christ. It grieved and wounded him. The disciples clung to their favorite idea that Christ would assert his power and take his position on the throne of David. And in heart, each still longed for the highest place in the kingdom. They had placed their own estimate upon themselves and upon one another. And instead of regarding their brethren as more worthy, they had placed themselves first. The request of James and John to sit on the right and the left of Christ's throne had excited indignation of the others. That the two brothers should presume to ask for the highest position so stirred the other ten that alienation threatened. They felt that they were misjudged that their fidelity and talents were not appreciated. Judas was the most severe upon James and John. Do you see what's going on? What's going on is the leaders of the church, right before Christ needs them to be ready to go through the time, are fighting with each other like little children. Think about the parallels now. Now, in... You have to understand how this, I want, to, I want you to picture this in your mind. This is not Da Vinci's The Last Supper. They were not lined up in a long table with Christ sitting in the middle. No, the 12 of them reclined in a circle with their legs out at the edges, almost like a rosette if you were to look down from the top down. She says here, in harmony with the rest that have been given them, the people then partook of the Passover supper in a reclining position. Couches were placed about the table, and the guests lay upon them, resting upon the left arm and having the right hand free to use in eating. In this position, a guest could lay his head upon the breast of one who sat next above him, and the feet being at the outer edge of the couch could be washed by one passing around the outside of the circle. 
Okay? Now, when the disciples entered the supper room, their hearts were full of resentful feelings. Judas pressed next to Christ on the left side. John was on the right. If there was a highest place, Judas was determined to have it, and that place was thought to be next to Christ, and Judas was a traitor. I want you to picture this. Think about looking at a clock, okay? And each of the arms, each of the numbers of that clock is where a disciple is sitting. Christ is sitting in between the 12 o'clock and the 1 o'clock position. So there's 13 of them sitting around, okay? Judas is sitting at the 1 o'clock position, and John is sitting at the 12 o'clock position, and Jesus is sitting right between them. When Jesus gets up to wash the feet, he starts first with Judas, and he goes clockwise all the way around until finally the last one is John. This is what she says in Desire of Ages. Another cause of dissension had arisen. At a feast, it was customary for the servant to wash the feet of the guests. And on this occasion, preparation had been made for the service. The pitcher, the basin, and the towel were there in readiness for the feet washing. But no servant was present. And it was the disciples' part to perform it. But each of the disciples, yielding to wounded pride, determined not to act the part of the servant's. All manifested a stoical unconcern, seeming unconscious that there was anything for them to do. By their silence, they refused to humble themselves. This is where we are. Now, this is the part where I read it, and I'm a little bit disconcerted because I don't know how long Jesus is going to wait. This is from the Spirit of Prophecy. She says, The disciples made no move towards serving one another. And the next sentence is this. Jesus waited for a time to see what they would do. How long is that going to be? How long is Jesus going to wait for this church to see what it is going to do? Because that's exactly what we're doing. We are waiting for God to come back, and God is waiting for us. And we think that he is the one who is delaying, but in fact, we are the ones who delayed. If all of you recognize this in 1888, Ellen White says that the latter rain had actually started to fall. Right? Think about this. We said that the only way you can graduate from the 13th to the 14th is to have the seal of righteousness by faith. That's the only way that that can happen. Do you, and, and we talked about this this morning. In 1888... Jones, in May of 1888, went to Capitol Hill and argued in a subcommittee of the U.S. Senate against the Blair Bill, which was a Sunday law. He was successful in doing it and shot it down. And I believe he was because God knew that later that year in October at the Minneapolis Convention General Conference, Jones and Wagner were rousedly defeated. Nobody accepted righteousness by faith. And let's face it, the reason why. The reason why that it wasn't accepted was the key word, righteousness by faith. Now, Satan knows that human beings are very fickle. We have a very, very short attention span. Righteousness by faith was what we needed to get out of the 13th. Righteousness by faith is what the children of Israel needed to have to go and inherit the promised land. And in fact, Joshua and Caleb, like Jones and Wagner, told the story straight. But we decided to believe the other 10 and because, and just as the children of Israel had to spend another 40 years in the wilderness, so we too, Ellen White says, had to wait around. It was going to be a long time, she said, before we were to get into the promised land. Why? Because of the rejection of 1888. Why was that? What was going on? Jones and Wagner were these pipsqueaks. 
And we had big people in the church, like Butler and the other, and the General Conference presidents. You have to realize that in 1888, they were just 40 years off of discovering the Sabbath, the law. All of these good things that we had to keep in order to be saved. And so it was not righteousness by faith, it was righteousness by works. Ellen White said, the law, the law, the law, all you're preaching about is the law. Where is Jesus in your message? She said, Jones and Wagner, I have never heard it so clearly from two men before in terms of righteousness by faith. And so we rejected the the message of righteousness by faith in 1888. But then we got smart. We said, oh, we missed it. It's faith, it's faith, it's faith. And for over 100 years now, we've been concentrating on faith. But folks, Satan would have us would, would love for us to be running around in a flood with fire extinguishers. He would love nothing more for us to be running around in a flood with fire extinguishers. Because now we are so fixated on the word faith, we've lost sight of the word righteousness. So we have, we have books that are written, redefining and, and equating perfection with legalism. Are we truly... Is it truly righteousness by faith? We got stumbled on the word faith back in 1888. Are we now stumbling on the word righteousness? I believe that we are. We have to have our eyes on both words, righteousness by faith. And so what happened here is we have been waiting for a long time. And we're going to continue to wait until we fully get that. I I believe that before we can move on, this church, there has to be a reawakening of this understanding of what happened in 1888, just like there was a reawakening in the children of Israel before they went in to the promised land to understand what it was that they needed to do to get there. A whole generation needed to die out. And there needed to be recircumcision, which again, by the way, is what? The sign of righteousness by faith. We saw it in Romans 4, chapter 11. Jesus waited for a time to see what they would do. Now notice what he does. Then he, the divine teacher, rose from the table, laying aside the outer garment that would have impeded his movements. He took a towel and girded himself. With surprised interest, the disciples looked on and in silence waited to see what he was to do, what was to follow. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. This action opened the eyes of the disciples. Bitter shame and humiliation filled their hearts. They understood the unspoken rebuke and saw themselves in an altogether new light. All of them except for one. Now Judas was ready to repent, but the very same action that opened the eleven's eyes closed Judas' heart. It says, before the Passover, Judas had met a second time with the priests and scribes and had closed the contract to deliver Jesus into their hearts. Yet he afterward mingled with the disciples as though innocent of any wrong and interested in the work of preparing for the feast. The disciples knew nothing of the purpose of Judas. Jesus alone could read his secret, yet he did not expose him. Jesus hungered for his soul. He felt for him such a burden as for Jerusalem when he wept over the doomed city. His heart was crying, how can I give thee up? The constraining power of that love was felt by Judas. When the Savior's hands were bathing those soiled feet, remember he got up first and washed Judas's feet first, and wiping them with the towel, the heart of Judas thrilled 
through and through with the impulse then and there to confess his sin. But he would not humble himself. He hardened his heart against repentance and the old impulses for the moment put aside then controlled him. Judas was now offended at Christ's act in washing the feet of his disciples. If Judas, if sorry, if Jesus could so humble himself, he thought, he could not be Israel's king. Did you catch that? The very act that Jesus did to Judas made Judas a non-believer, that Christ could actually be the king. But it was because of the eleven's faith that Jesus indeed was the king caused them to have a completely different look at themselves and caused them to come to repentance and, yea, even righteousness. Do you see what righteousness by faith is? It's totally different. The eleven believed that Jesus was king. And it was because of that belief that it caused them to have a change in their heart. Whereas Judas did not quite believe, and because of Jesus' action, caused him to be shut out. Even though it was the very same action. He could not be Israel's king, Judas thought. All hope of worldly honor in a temporal kingdom was destroyed. Judas was satisfied that there was nothing to be gained by following Christ. After seeing him degrade himself, as he thought, he was confirmed in his purpose to disown him and confess himself deceived. He was possessed by a demon, and he resolved to complete the work that he had agreed to do in betraying his Lord. So again, we have this dichotomy. We have John and the eleven believing that Jesus Christ is the king, is the Lord, and to see him get up and take on the lowly position of servant to wash your feet and my feet causes us to be like Mary Magdalene at Simon's feast. And only if you have a belief, only if you have a personal connection with Jesus Christ who literally saved you from stoning because of your infidelity can you have the belief that Mary Magdalene had at the foot of Christ at Simon's feast? A mere casual relationship with Jesus Christ like Simon had, who did not greet him with a kiss, who invited him over for dinner, but that was about it, and had a casual conversation with him at the dinner feast. What what goes through your mind is the same thing that went through Simon's mind. By the way, Simon was the father of Judas. You may not know that. Read the story again and you will see. That Simon the leper, Simon the Pharisee, was the father of Judas. Yes, the father of Judas, which means that Mary Magdalene, who was Simon's niece, was the cousin of Judas. That was one family. Now, remember the parable that Jesus told? He said, Simon, I have something to say to thee. If I had someone who owed me 500 and someone who owed me 50 and I forgave both of them, who would love me more? Well, he says, obviously the one who owed you more. He says, that's right. And Simon knew exactly because Simon was the one that led Mary into that sin. And in fact, as Mary saw it, she saw herself owing 500 and Christ forgiving her the 500. But in fact, it was Simon that owed the 500 because he's the one that got her into that sin in the first place. You see how that switched around? It's amazing. These numbers in the Bible, they mean things. What was she doing? She broke the alabaster jar and she wiped the feet of Jesus Christ with the spikenard. How much was that worth? 300. What does that show? That was all that she could do. She owed 500 and all that she could do was only 300. What does that tell us? There's nothing we can do to repay Christ. 
we can never reach the 500. There's nothing we'll ever be able to do. But what did she do? Did she do it knowing that it was 300? No, she was criticized for what she was doing, even though it was coming out of her heart. Righteousness by faith. What did Christ say to her at the very end of that chapter? Go in peace, thy faith have saved thee. Jesus, every word means something. Every word. Thy faith has saved thee. And so we see this dichotomy between Judas, whose father was a Pharisee, who had all of the red books in his home, who had access to all of the scriptures, who had all of the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. Am I starting to cut you a little bit here? Who had the opportunity to be with Christ for those three and a half years, who controlled the money, I'm sorry, but those of us here in North America who live in, in, in opulence compared to the rest of the world, think about it. We have all of these advantages, all of the advantages that Judas had. Think about that. Ellen White says, So Peter and his brethren have been washed in the great fountain opened for sin and uncleanness. Christ acknowledged them as he did, but temptation had led them to evil. And they still needed his cleansing grace. When Jesus girded himself with a towel to wash the dust from their feet, he desired that the very act to wash alienation, jealousy, pride from their hearts. This was of far more consequence than the washing of their dusty feet. With the spirit that they had, not one of them was prepared for communion with Christ. Until brought into a state of humility and love, they were not prepared to partake of the Paschal Supper. The supper is on the 14th. The foot washing is on the 13th. Or for you guys here, the 13th. That's the foot washing. That's the Paschal Supper. Ellen White says that until they had the foot washing, they were not ready to take in the supper. We are not ready for the Sunday law and the 14th and all that it comes with until we have a baptism of the Holy Spirit on the 13th, and we have the seal of righteousness by faith. We need a foot-washing experience in the upper room. She goes on. She says, state of humility and love, they were not prepared to partake in the Paschal Supper or to share in the memorial service which Christ was about to institute. Their hearts must be cleansed. Pride and self-seeking create dissension and hatred. But all this Jesus washed away in washing their feet. A change of feeling was brought about. Looking upon them, Jesus could say, Ye are clean. Now there was a union of heart, of love for one another. They have become humble and teachable. Except Judas, each was ready to concede the other the highest place. Now with subdued and grateful hearts, they could receive Christ's words. So here we are. The ordinance of humility, the foot washing, is a superposition on the outpouring of the former reign of ridding of sin. Remember what we said at the beginning of the 14th? This is really interesting. At the beginning of the 14th, even today, if you go into a Jewish home who practices the Passover, they go throughout the home with a feather and a spoon gathering up 10 pieces of leaven so they can take it out and have it burned by noon that day. Feather and a spoon. 
something created by God, something created by man, cooperating together in trying to find leaven in the house, taking it out of the house to be burned by noon on the 14th. Do you know Judas, Judas went out and hung himself before noon on the 14th? find it interesting. The holy watcher from heaven is present at this season to make it one of soul-searching, of conviction of sin, and, the, and of the blessed assurance of sins forgiven. Christ, in the fullness of his grace, is there to change the currents of the thought that have been running in selfish channels. The Holy Spirit quickens the sensibility of those who follow the example of their Lord. As the Savior's humiliation for us is remembered, thoughts link with a thought of chain of memories is called up. Memories of God's great goodness and of the favor and tenderness of earthly friends. Blessings forgotten, mercies abused, kindness slighted are called to mind. Roots of bitterness that have crowded out the precious paint of love, the plant of love that are manifest. Defects of character, neglect of duties, ingratitude to God, coldness toward our brethren are called to remembrance. Sin is seen in the light in which God views it. Our thoughts are not thoughts of self-complacency, but thoughts of self-censure and humiliation. The mind is energized to break down every barrier that has caused alienation. Evil thinking and evil speaking are put away. Sins are confessed. They are forgiven. The subduing grace of Christ comes into the soul, and the love of Christ draws together in blessed unity. What happened when Jesus Christ says that one of you is going to betray? What did the eleven say? after they were converted. Is it me? Have I done it? Now very sensitive to their evil ways, knowing this, they now look upon themselves and wonder if the one that is going to betray Christ is one of them. Christ is still at the table on which the Paschal Supper has been spread. The unleavened cakes used at the Passover season are before him. The Passover wine, untouched by fermentation, is on the table. These emblems Christ employs to represent his own unblemished sacrifice. Nothing corrupted by fermentation. The symbol of sin and death could represent, that's leaven, could represent the lamb without blemish and without spot. Now what happened to Judas? So now it's time for the supper because he's already done the foot washing. So it says in chapter 72 of Desire of Ages, Judas the betrayer was present at the sacramental service. He received from Jesus the emblems of his broken body and his spilled blood. He heard the words, this do in remembrance of me. And sitting there in the very presence of the Lamb of God, the betrayer brooded upon his own dark purposes. He cherished his sullen, revengeful thoughts. At the feet washing, Christ had given convincing proof that he understood the character of Judas. Ye are not all clean, he said. These words convinced the false disciple that Christ read his secret purpose. Now Christ spoke out of more plainly. As they were seated at the table, he said, looking upon his disciples, I speak not of all you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me had lifted up his heel against me. But even now, the disciples did not suspect Judas, but they saw that Christ appeared greatly troubled. A cloud settled over them all, a premonition of some dreadful calamity, the nature of which they did not understand. As they ate in silence, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. 
at these words of amazement and consternation that seized them. They could not comprehend how any one of them could treacherously deal with their divine teacher. For what cause would they betray him? And to whom? Whose heart could give birth to such a design? Surely not one of the favored twelve who had been privileged above all others to hear his teachings, who had shared his wonderful love, and for whom he had shown such a great regard by bringing them into close communication with himself. As they realized the import of his words and remembered how true his sayings were, fear and self-distrust seized them. They began to search their own hearts to see if one of them thought against their master was harbored there. With the most painful emotion, one after another inquired, Lord, is it I? But Judas sat silent. John, in deep distress, at last inquired, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. The disciples had searched one another's faces closely as they asked, Lord, is it I? And how the silence of Judas drew all eyes unto him. Amid the confusion of questions and expressions of astonishment, Judas had not heard the words of Jesus in answer to John's question. But now, to escape the scrutiny of the disciples, he asked that they had done, Master, is it I? Jesus solemnly replied, Thou hast said. And so here we are, once again. Remember, the 13th is when the sun is up. The 14th is when the sun is down. The 13th is when probation is open. The 14th is when probation starts to close in the house of the Lord. And at that time, who would that be? It would be one of the 12. It would be one of the 12. And we know that this would happen because this is exactly what we would foretold based on all of these scriptural stories that we've given. So what we would need to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is the case is some statement from Ellen G. White, if you will, that showed that when Jesus, sorry, when Judas got up from that supper and left, that is when his probation closed. Correct? That would fulfill and show that this is exactly what is about to happen. Let us look and see what Ellen White writes. She says, In surprise and confusion at the exposure of his purpose, Judas rose hastily to leave the room. And then Jesus said unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. That would seem to be just a historical marker, but for those of us who are reading now more carefully in the sight of this this the structure that we're looking at, the fact that it says, and it was night, means so much more to us because now we know exactly what we are dealing with. Night it was to the traitor as he turned away from Christ into the outer darkness. She goes on. Until this step was taken, Judas had not passed beyond the possibility of repentance. But when he left the presence of his Lord and his fellow disciples, the final decision had been made. He had passed the boundary line. Now, folks, we don't know who Judas is, but we do know who Judas represents. He represents those people who are prideful, who have many advantages, who have been given the advantage of being with Jesus Christ for years, and yet do not have a relationship of faith. Because when Jesus got up to wash the disciples' feet, that was enough for him to say, this is not happening. 
and there is no more worth me staying here to take part in this. Let me go on and finish what I want to do. And yet for the 11, it was enough. So what happens? What does the Lord's Supper mean? Think about at the Lord's Supper what you're doing. You are taking the body of Christ in symbol into your body. You're internalizing. Tell me, isn't that exactly what happens with the latter rain? Doesn't the latter rain, isn't it outpoured and come into us? And so in fact, in this parallel, the Lord's Supper, the eating of the ambulance, is in fact superpositioned on the latter rain. Ellen White goes on, and how much more are Christ's words true of our spiritual nature? He declares, whoever so eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. It is by receiving the life for us poured out on Calvary's cross that we can live the life of holiness. And this life we receive by receiving his word, by doing those things which he has commanded. Thus we become one with him. He that eateth my flesh, he says, and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me. And I in him, as the living Father had sent me, I live by the Father, so that he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. To the Holy Communion, this scripture is a special sense applies. As faith contemplates our Lord's great sacrifice, the soul assimilates the spiritual life of Christ. That soul will receive spiritual strength from every communion. This service forms a living connection by which the believer is bound up with Christ and thus bound up with the Father. In a special sense, it forms a connection between dependent human beings and God. And so here we are. This situation where if, you remember what it says in the Bible, that if whoever eats of my flesh and my blood unworthily, what happens to them? They are unto damnation. And that is exactly what happened. Folks, all of us, are going to be experiencing this latter rain that is about to happen. It's going to be poured out. We will all be eating the blood, drinking the blood and eating the, the body of Christ. The question is, are we going to have a foot-washing experience of the 11, or are we going to have a foot-washing experience of Judas? And that is the idea of righteousness by faith. If we go back to Simon's feast, which happened on the 13th, again, Think about what happened there. We have Simon, who thought he owed 50, but really was the one that owed 500. And we have Mary Magdalene, who had thought she, in her mind, owed 500, but it was really 50, right? It was the flip. But because of her understanding of where she was and where she came from, she understood that she was gone. She was a sinner. She was about to die. She was about to be stoned to death. She was the woman that was caught in the act of adultery. And yet Jesus saved her at the point of, of death. And that is us as the church. When we understand that, we will have the same relationship that she has. And it is that faith in Jesus Christ that will give us righteousness, just like it was for, for Abraham and Lot. And so you see in all of these stories, whether it's Lot and Lot's daughter, who gave rise to the Moab bites. Ruth was a Moabite, and she was the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Or if it is uh, Rahab. Rahab was married to Salmon after she was saved, and together they had a son named Boaz, and Boaz married Ruth and gave rise to Jesus. So in all of these stories, the one thing that, it's the, that, that happens at the end is that there is a sinful woman at the end of the story who somehow gets 
pulled in to the ancestry of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? That means that a sinful woman eventually gives rise to a chaste virgin, Mary. And that's what's going to happen. Doesn't Paul say, I want to present you, the church, as a chaste virgin to Jesus Christ at the end? So, Christ, so God can take the most sinful experiences, the most sinful situations, and can turn that into a chaste virgin. And, and we know Mary and the Holy Spirit produced what? Jesus Christ, who was a man who kept the commandments of God and had the faith, the testimony of Jesus Christ. The same equation is going to happen at the end, except instead of a virgin specifically, it's going to be the church. And so therefore, instead of just Jesus Christ, who had the nature of Adam after the fall, but yet never sinned and would rather die than sin, you're going to have 144,000 who have the nature of Adam after the fall. Because that 144,000, just like Jesus, will have a mother who is a chaste virgin and a father who is the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, through the latter rain, will come into that chaste virgin as she is being sanctified. You know, at the very end, we didn't talk about this, but at the very end, when Jesus Christ throws down the censer at the end of the close of probation, Ellen White throws in a, a very interesting statement in early writings. She says that the, that the, the, the citizens were made up, the, the judgment has been done, he that is just is just, he that is unjust is unjust, and then she throws in a very interesting statement. She says, the marriage of the lamb has been consummated. And if you understand a Jewish wedding, you'll understand that finally at the end, the Holy Spirit will consummate and, and conceive, in fact, in the chaste virgin, which is the church at the end, and you will have a pregnancy. And now we're in Revelation chapter 12. Remember Revelation chapter 12? Because in Revelation chapter 12, what you have is a woman who is standing on the moon and remember on the 15th, what we said about the 15th? That's when the moon is always the fullest and the brightest. And so here's, here's the woman who's consummated on the 14th, 13th, 14th. And then finally on the 15th, on the 15th, you have a woman who is standing on the moon. And on the 15th, the moon is always full. And she is being lit up by the sun because the moon is full. She is full. She is dressed in white and she is with child's. And at the beginning of Revelation chapter 12, we have Jesus Christ being born. And at the end of Revelation chapter 12, we have the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that's where we will be. And it all will start with us today understanding righteousness by faith. So pray that we, we have that and that we understand that. We need to... Um, we need to understand righteousness by faith if we're going to get through this. We have to understand more fully what happened at the, at the Last Supper. Let's stand as we, uh, as we close. Those of you who want a better understanding of righteousness by faith, put your hands up. Let's do that. Dear Lord, let us understand righteousness by faith as we go forward. Please help us to understand more fully what it is that you want us to do. Have us, have us not be waiting. Do not wait for a time to see what we will do. Let us understand what it is that we need to do. Let us not wait for you to wash our feet. Let us have that understanding, for you've already washed our feet. You've died for us. And um, help us to have an understanding of Mary Magdalene, 
at, at Simon's feast so that we can be fully ready to, to understand and have righteousness by faith so that when your latter reign comes, we will be sealed. Help us to understand this and to spread the word in thy name. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.